So here's what we're going to do this morning. If you have your Bible, we're going to be reading from John chapter 17. And this is a passage in which Jesus, uh, right before he's about to go be betrayed and arrested and crucified, he takes time to pray for his disciples. He takes time out of the agony that he's about to go experience to pray for his disciples because he knows that's what his disciples need. So if you have your Bible, John chapter 17, and we're going to be beginning in verse 6. But before we do that, why don't we go and ask God that he would help us and pray to him. Father, uh, we need your help. I confess, Father, I don't know how to pray. And I need the help of Jesus. I need to overhear this prayer myself. And I know there's many of us gathered here that, that struggle in that same way. So would your prayer that we get to overhear, would it encourage us? Would you guide us? Would you teach us what it means? And would you help us really apply it to our lives? I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 17, we're going to be beginning in verse 6, and then we're going to skip down to verse 9 and read to verse 19. This is the word of God. Jesus prayed to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you gave me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent you, so I send them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. That's the word of God. So if you're like me when you're sick, and you're at home, you turn on daytime television. And it can be a hit or miss experience, right? But one thing I've noticed is there's a lot of doctors on on TV now. You might know Dr. Oz. He's like the health guru. So if you wanna know something to help your body, you you watch Dr. Oz or there's Dr. Phil. He's the psychological guy. So if you're a little down, you turn on Dr. Phil. And there's another famous doctor. You probably never heard of him because he was famous only in a small town. It was a small town just outside of Pittsburgh. It was a college town. His name was Dr. Jameson. Dr. Jameson uh, spent decades as a foreign missionary, which means he spent a lot of time overseas providing medical care to people who couldn't afford it. And he spent years and years until he wasn't able to work there anymore and he had to come back to the United States and, and his health had deteriorated so much that he couldn't work at all anymore. And he said he faced a dilemma. He said, I spent my entire adult life as a doctor. I spent years earning medical degrees. I studied an amount almost nobody should study to try and learn the skills to do this job. And now I can't work. I'm sitting on a bed all day. What can I do? And so he said, he prayed to God and he asked God to show him a new work 
that he could do. And so what he said, God told him, was that he was going to devote himself to a new work, a new career, a new vocation. He said, I will work for eight hours a day. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to go day in and day out for eight hours on my knees praying to God. I don't do that. And, and you can imagine, right? This is a college town. If anybody needed a prayer request, where do you think they went? They went to Dr. Jameson. If anybody didn't know how to pray, where did they go? They went to Dr. Jameson. And, and we need that too, right? Praying is hard. Praying is extremely difficult. I, I was looking up statistics. In 2015 through 2017, the U.S. Census Bureau said that Denver residents ranked among the top 10 for most hours worked out of the entire country, which means we are a busy people. We don't even have time to pray. And, and I looked at this stat too. According to research in the year 2000, this one makes me laugh, the average attention span of an American adult was 12 seconds. <laughs> Can you guess what it is today? It's 2019, 19 years later, it is less than eight seconds crazy. And, and I struggle with that too, right? Sometimes like I'm praying and I'm, I'm trying to focus on God. I'm trying to focus on Jesus. I'm trying to tell him what matters. But all that's in my head is why did the Broncos trade for Joe Flacco? <laughs> right? Why? And why did they draft another court? Oh, never mind. But beyond the statistics, right? We're, we're also, just, we're just overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed. We ask like, is it, when we're overwhelmed with life, is following Jesus even worth it? Why should I even pray to him? Or we struggle when we're struggling through life and, and we pray, God, I just, I don't even have the energy to pray. I don't even have the strength to do it. I can't even get down on my knees. That's how tired I am. And, and some of us, if we're honest, right, we doubt. Does God even hear my prayer? Does my prayer even go past the ceiling? So sometimes what we need just like the many who went and visited Dr. Jameson, we need somebody else to pray for us. We need to overhear somebody else's prayer to help us. Because, right, many of us, we want to pray. That's our desire. We want to relate to God. We want to have a conversation with God, but we don't really know how to do it. We don't know where to start. And, and for that reason, we get discouraged and ultimately we just don't do it. Well, Jesus, in this passage, in John 17, he prays specifically for his followers. He, remember, he said, I'm not praying for the world. He's not praying generally for the world. He says he's praying for those whom the Father gave him, which means God the Father gave Jesus a specific people whom he was going to pray for, who he was going to teach to, and who he was ultimately going to lay down his life for. And Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm praying for those followers. I'm praying for those people that are following me. That's his target audience. And in that process, he shows them and he shows us, this is how you pray for one another. When you wanna pray for a family member, when you wanna pray for a coworker, when you wanna pray for a loved one, Jesus shows us this is what he cares about and this is what we should pray for the others in our lives. So, so what does Jesus pray for? So if you have your Bible, again, John chapter 17, we see Jesus prays for three things. He prays first for unity. He prays that his followers would be one, even as he and the Father are one. He prays for joy. He prays that they would have the joy of Jesus within themselves. And then lastly, he prays for truth, that they would be sanctified in the truth. And we'll explain what that means when we get there. But let's start at the first point, that Jesus prays for unity. And he does so beginning in verse 11. Jesus, remember, he's leaving the earth and he says, I am no longer in the world, 
but they, my followers, are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. And you know, as I was studying this passage and I was thinking, I, I had to think, why, why does Jesus pray for unity? Like, why, does that, why is that where he starts? This is his last prayer. Surely there are more important things to pray for than his followers being one, right? Like, like Jesus, there's poverty. Why doesn't he pray for poverty? Why doesn't he pray for famine? Why doesn't he pray for war? Why doesn't he pray for the 2020 election, right? The things that really matter. Well, these things, Jesus is saying, yes, they're pressing and these are important issues. But what he's saying is, my followers are gonna face a much more significant hardship, much more significant than war, much more significant than poverty, much more significant than uh, famine. He says, they are going to follow this, they are going to experience the same things that I experienced. And so what does he say? He says, there are threats to my followers and he outlines what they are beginning in verse 14. Jesus says this, he says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In other words, Jesus is saying is just as the world hated and rejected Jesus, so too his followers will be rejected by the world. Just as Satan tempted and attacked Jesus, Satan is going to tempt and attack his followers. And we'll talk about what that means a little later on. So what Jesus is saying is the experience that I'm about to face, the experience that I faced in my time on earth, that is the same experience that any person who follows Jesus is going to experience. And his main prayer for his people is that in the face of the world, in the face of Satan, is that they would remain one, that they would commit themselves to one another and that they would commit themselves as one to following Jesus. And you know, Jesus, his immediate followers right now, they're called apostles. And we're told that there were 11 of them at this point. One of them had gone out to betray him. But when you think of their life, they faced this assault from the world in a particularly difficult way. They lived during the Roman empire. And in the Roman empire, the Roman emperor was king. And not only was he king, he was also considered a god. So he wanted political allegiance and he wanted religious allegiance. So what the Roman empire would do is they would make a big statue of the Caesar, of the Roman emperor. And they would have people go up to this statue. They would have to bow down on their knees. They would give him a sacrifice or an offering and they would have to cry out, Caesar is Lord. And that presented a problem for these apostles because the main thing that they would go out and tell the world is Jesus is Lord, Christ is Lord. So the apostles faced a dilemma, right? They had two options. They could bow to the emperor, they could say Caesar is Lord and they could save their own lives. Or they could proclaim Christ is Lord, Lord remain united to believers and they would lose their life as a result. And if you do know the story of those 11 apostles, 10 of them ultimately died as martyrs, meaning they refused to say Caesar is Lord. They would not give up following Jesus. They remained one. So maybe you're asking the question, well, how, how does that relate to us, right? 
We, we don't face that kind of persecution. We don't face that kind of resistance, that temptation. We're not persecuted like they were in the 21st century. So would Jesus still pray the same thing today? And, and on the face of it, yes, right? Yes, we are not facing the kind of persecution that they faced. But that doesn't mean we don't face the same temptation to separate, right? The stakes aren't as high for us, but the temptation is the same. Let me give you an example. There was a, a man by the name of Rico Tice. Rico is a evangelist, which means he goes and he shares the gospel with others. He goes and shares the message of Jesus with others. He lived in the United Kingdom and he told this story of when he first became a Christian that he faced a temptation. His grandma was sick and she was in the hospital and he knew that his grandma didn't believe in Jesus. So he's sitting there in, in this uh, emergency room and he wants to tell her this news about who Jesus is because he really and earnestly believed what the scriptures say that unless a person believes in Jesus, then they will spend an eternity separated from God. And so he faced this dilemma. He said, I wanna tell my grandma in her dying hours, I wanna tell her about Jesus. But ultimately he said, every time he tried to get the words out in the back of his mind was going, what will your family think? Your family's gonna think you're crazy. Your family's gonna think that you rejected your mom and your grandma and your brother and your sister. See, that wasn't the apostles, right? That wasn't, that wasn't him making the decision between Caesar or death. It wasn't a matter of life and death for Rico. The stakes were not as high, but the temptation was sane. The choice was either follow the approval of family or follow the approval of Jesus. And that's the temptation we all face. The stakes are not as high, but the temptation is the same. And, and we all fear that, right? We all fear that. We all fear what it'll do to our reputation, don't we? We all say things like, I'm gonna be a social outcast if I start believing in that. Or, or we say things like, man, my coworkers are gonna think I'm really weird. I'm not gonna get invited to a company picnic ever again. What, what will my family think? What if, what if my friends stop talking to me? And, and maybe you're facing that this morning. Maybe you're facing that in a particular way. I know when I was in college, I played baseball in college, and I know that's when I became a believer of Jesus and immediately, the second that I became a Christian, I knew that everybody in my, on my baseball team thought differently of me. And it was really tempting, right? I wanted to be embraced by this baseball team. After all, we spent like nine months out of the year together. But I faced that temptation. I wanted to be accepted with them, but I knew my devotion and I knew my heart and I knew my life was devoted to Jesus. And, and maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, what will, my, what will my husband think if I actually start doing this? If I actually take a next step and I start following Jesus, what's my husband gonna think? Or what, what's my son gonna think? He's gonna be disappointed in me. See, Jesus is saying that the temptation is the same. The stake isn't as high, but for us, the temptation is the same. It's not abnormal to feel that tension. That is a normal tension that Jesus says, we need to expect that. There will always be a tension between following the world, following the approval of others, seeking the acceptance in their company, or following Jesus and devoting ourselves to a life with him. But Jesus says, trust me, this course that you're following, if you stay one, if you remain one, and if you follow me with my people, this course that you're following, it will lead to your good. 
So stay united, stay one, continue to follow me. So, so that's Jesus' first prayer to us. That's the first prayer that he gives his disciples before he leaves. He prays that they would be one, even as he and the Father are one. But Jesus realizes that is not enough. That's not enough. He also realizes we don't need encouragement to follow him. We also need the joy of Jesus within us. We need the joy to carry on. So that's the second thing he prays for. He prays for joy. And we can see that in verse 13. Jesus prays, Father, now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, remember I said I became a Christian in college And I remember when I said I was first going to follow Jesus, I thought my life was going to get better. I thought for sure that after I followed Jesus, my life would become easier. I thought the people who didn't like me, they would all of a sudden like me. I thought that if I start following Jesus, all the difficulties that I struggle with, my poor grades, my my bad decisions, all those things would get left behind me. And my life would kind of be just this upward trajectory up until everything was perfect and right. And That sounds kind of silly, but but it's tempting to think that, isn't it? It's tempting to think that, that once we follow Jesus, right, our lives are going to get better. That's just intuitive. But that is the temptation we all face. And and I was actually speaking recently with a friend who was battling depression. And he was saying, "I, I just find myself so discouraged. No matter how much I read the Bible, no matter how much I pray, no matter how much I go to church, this just doesn't seem to work. Why do I do this? It doesn't seem to work. My life is falling apart at the seams. I can't even get out of the bed in the morning. And, and I don't think my friend was alone. J.I. Packer, he's a theologian, which means he literally gets paid to just think about God all day. That's all he gets paid to do. He had this quote, constantly we find ourselves, myself included, slipping into bitterness and apathy and gloom as we reflect on the world. The attitude we show the world is a sort of dried up stoicism, miles removed from the joy to which Jesus and the other New Testament writers speak. See what Packer was saying there is there, there is this disconnect, right? There's this disconnect. We know that we are supposed to be joyful. We know that we're supposed to rejoice, but sometimes life and our circumstances are hard. Following Jesus is difficult. Sometimes we slip into depression, to apathy, into gloom. And, and if you're like me, right, when somebody comes to you and they tell you that, what is your first inclination? Your first inclination is to kind of slip into platitudes, right? You say things like, cheer up, hang in there. Things are going to get better. Life is what you make of it. Sometimes I literally want to go grab a DVD player and I want to put in the sound of music and play that song like raindrops on roses. And like, I think, hey, if we just look to the right things, if we just cheer up, if we put a smile on, things are going to get better. But I love what Jesus prays here. Notice what Jesus prays here. He prays that the father would put his joy in his followers. Jesus is saying, Jesus is, joy is not something you can just turn on and off. Joy is not something, it's just not put on a smile and things are gonna get better. No, Jesus saying is joy is supernaturally put into you by God. It is a joy that comes from exclusively loving, knowing and following Jesus and trusting in him alone. That is the only source of joy that will give you joy as you walk through this world. In fact, it is a joy that cost Jesus his own life. It is a costly joy. 
It is not put a smile on. No, Jesus, in order to earn that joy for us, went to the cross to die for us. Jesus died that so we could experience his joy, that God the Father could put his joy within us. And and when you think about Jesus' followers, this makes sense, right? Like these followers, these 11 apostles who are following Jesus at this point, we're told that they, they gave up everything. They gave up their homes. They gave up their friends. They gave up their families. They gave up their careers, all because they believed there was more joy in following Jesus than all of those things combined. Rick Warren put it this way. He said, you do not know that Jesus's joy is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You do not know, you do not know that Jesus's joy is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Only once you lose everything will you truly realize that Jesus is all you need for joy, that no raise in your salary, that no amount of square footage in your household no amount of approval from your parents, no amount of letters behind your name, MD, PhD, MSW, none of that is going to give you true joy. None of it will give you the joy you're searching for. It is only found in knowing Jesus who purchased it on the cross, knowing that joy. That's the only joy that Jesus says will last and sustain you. And I wanna pause because that can sound all this sounds like really conceptual, right? This sounds kind of like up in, the, up in the air. So I wanna make it real practical. Here's what Jesus does not mean. Jesus does not mean that you have to go and sell everything that you own, right? You do not have to quit your job. You do not have to move to the desert and pray for 14 hours and fast for 14 hours a day. You do not have to do that. But what it does mean is that Jesus's greatest desire for you is to find your joy and contentment in him. You can work a nine to five job, You can provide for your family. You can raise your children, pursue higher education. You can seek marriage. But as soon as those things become your source of joy, Jesus is saying you are going to miss joy and you're going to miss God in the process. So so here's what I mean. Think Think you're playing football outside, right? And it's a fall day and there's the tire swing that you're trying to throw the football through, right? Now that tire swing is God. And once you get the football through it, on the other side of it is joy, Now, if you start throwing that football in other directions and you start seeking joy in your marriage, in your career, in your family, then ultimately what's gonna happen? You are going to miss God and you are never going to get the joy that you desire. That's what Jesus is praying here. He's saying, joy is found only in me. I am the only source of joy that there is. And, and I, always, I always use this question. If you are a person in here and you think my goal in life is that my kids will turn out right, or my goal in life, my aspiration in life is that I will succeed above everybody else that I work with, then the great question that Jesus would have you ask and that he's actually praying for is, how's that working for you? How is that working for you? Do you have your joy yet? And I'm not trying to pour Epsom salt in wounds here. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is show you what Jesus says. Your only joy is gonna be following me. And when you pray, right? Because it's easy to pray. This is what I pray all the time. God, please help my daughter obey me just this once. Please, please. 
God, it's Saturday. Will you please help me and my wife, Hannah, just get along? It's Saturday. God, please help me afford this home. Please. Jesus is saying to those people, people like us, he's saying, it's okay to pray those things, but your ultimate joy is not going to come once your daughter obeys you, once you get that promotion, once you and your wife get along. No, your only joy is gonna come in the midst of all those difficulties, you seeking joy in Jesus, knowing Jesus in the midst of our struggles is how we find true and lasting joy. That's what Jesus is praying that we would experience here. So Jesus has prayed for those two things. He prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one, that we'd be united. And he also prays that we would experience the joy of knowing him. And the last thing he prays for is that we would be sanctified in the truth. And he prays that beginning in verse 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now that word sanctify in the Bible, it means two things. It means first to be set apart by God, to be set apart from a common use, to be set apart for the service of God. That's the first meaning. The second meaning means that we're becoming holy. So when God sanctifies something, it is made holy. It's made more and more like the character of God. It's made more and more like Jesus. So Jesus, when he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. What he's saying is for these people, my followers, set them apart in what they believe. Set them apart by what they know is true. Change them in their minds to look, act, think, and worship like me. That's what Jesus is praying. So, so why does Jesus pray for that? Why does Jesus ask for that? Well, remember I told you about this evil one that we talked about before. In verse 15, remember Jesus said, I do not ask that you take my disciples out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And now maybe you don't believe in an evil one. Maybe you don't believe in Satan. That's who Jesus is referring to here. And, and if, you, if you don't, then you're not alone. Actually, a poll taken by George Barna of American Christians said that 59% of American Christians do not believe that Satan is a living being, but he is merely a symbol of evil. So, so even Christians struggle with this idea. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus believed in an evil one. Jesus believed there was a personal evil one whose greatest desire was to take the people of God away from God himself. And, and it's important whenever we talk about anything in the Bible, so we're gonna talk about this with Satan too. It's important when we're talking about Satan, not to say more than the Bible says about him, but we also don't wanna say less than the Bible says about him. And the first thing that the Bible says about Satan is that he is a liar. He's a liar. And his greatest weapon is not demonic possession. It's not to scare us. It's not to make a, a horror movie unfold in the rest of our lives. No, Satan's main weapon is he is a liar. He wants you to believe these lies. He wants you to believe that God is not good. That's his main lie. What he wants you to see is, see, God doesn't love you. You lost your job. God doesn't love you. He's not good. God is not generous. God's not generous. He's withholding from you. Have you seen how many laws are in this book? By the way, there's 10 commandments. Do you know how many 
gun commandments there are just in the United States, just for owning a firearm, there's over 40,000, right? Jesus has given us 10 rules for our flourishing in our life. But Satan's temptation is God's not generous. He's holding back from you. He doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to follow the rules. He says, God's not trustworthy. See, when you trusted in Jesus, what happened? Things got hard. You can't trust him. You can't trust him with your life. You can't give him your life. And Jesus prays here. Praise that for all of us in this room. He prayed it for his earliest disciples. He prays for all of us. He says, I want you to be set apart and changed in your mind by God's word. Friends, this is the only good news that the world has ever known. When you log on to CNN or you log on to Fox News, there's never any good news on the front page, but this is the good news. This is the good news that Jesus wanted you to hear that is only found in the word of God. It is the good news that God is good, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that if you would believe in him, you'd have everlasting life, that God is generous, that we don't deserve God's favor, but he gives it to us freely that we are approved by God, not by anything we do, but because of what God has already done. God is generous and God is trustworthy. Jesus himself laid down his own life so we could entrust our lives to him, no matter how hard our marriages are, no matter how many times our kids don't wanna speak to us, no matter how many illnesses we battle through, God is generous and trustworthy and good. That's what Jesus prays we would know. And he says, here's the proof of it. Here's the proof of it. In verse 19, remember Jesus said these words as he was praying, these are the last words he says. He says, for their sake, that's us, his followers, I consecrate myself. That's the same word sanctify. I set myself apart that they also may be sanctified in truth. See what Jesus is saying is, I have set myself apart. I'm going to do something that nobody in the world has ever done. I'm about to do the one thing that nobody else in this world could do. I'm about to live a perfect life and I'm about to go and die the death that every person in this room deserves. I'm setting myself apart for that. And why? That they also might be sanctified in the truth so that we would know the truth that God is good he is generous and he is trustworthy. That is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He has combated the lies of Satan on the cross so that we can know who God really is and what he's done for us. Friends, our moms love us, right? Our moms change our diapers. Our moms feed us at 3 a.m. Our moms heal our, our, our scabs that we get on our knees. Some of our moms might even die for us. Jesus died for you. He consecrated himself. He set himself apart to do the very thing that you couldn't do for yourself. And he did it all to show you God is good. He is generous. You can trust him with your life because he wants to give you eternal life. And let me close on this. My wife and I love the show Friends. We spend almost every night in our bed before we go to sleep watching the show Friends. And I think we're on our fourth time through the entire seasons. Seasons, right? So we've wasted a lot of time on it. 
there's this one, <laughs> there's this one really awesome story that always makes me laugh. It's the story of Chandler. Chandler's a habitual smoker. So he's trying to quit smoking. So he gets a hypnosis tape from his friend that he's supposed to play at night while he's sleeping. And it just repeats these words over. And ultimately he thinks by doing this, it's going to help him kick the habit of smoking. Well, little does he know that this tape was made specifically for women. So it it repeats things over in the middle of the night, like you are a strong and powerful woman. No woman like you needs cigarettes in their life. And as a result, Chandler starts living like a woman. He starts like crying when he breaks his fingernail, no offense women, but he starts doing feminine things. Here's the things, friends. Jesus wants to remind us over and over and over again, week in and week out, in his word, the only good news the world has ever known, he wants to remind us, God is good. And we need that message because it's not the one that we believe. God is generous. And we need that because we always wanna earn God's approval. God is trustworthy. And we need that because we do not, not, want to surrender anything in our life if it could cause us pain. But Jesus is saying, look to the cross, look to my word. I have sanctified myself. I've set myself apart. You can know that God is good. And that's his prayer for us. If you want to pray like Jesus, make these things the center of what you pray for your friends, for your families, for your coworkers, for anybody in your life. That is what Jesus wants for them. And that's what we should want for them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news. (laughs) Thank you for the good news, God, that you are good, that you're generous, that you're trustworthy. We can give our lives to you, that you love us, that you sent Jesus to be sanctified, set apart to die for us when we didn't deserve it. And God, I pray, I pray for our perseverance. I pray that we would continue to follow Jesus even when it's hard, that we would remain one, that we'd commit ourselves to one another as we follow Jesus. I also pray, Father, that you would give us your joy. I know I need that and I know many in here need that as we're walking through some many difficult things. So I pray, Father, would you apply this word to our hearts and help us live it out this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.